The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks tonight. And a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. I understand, I think, that it's not so easy to walk in the door, for the first time at least. And uh, even though we, the teachers and staff, we want to make come ground an accessible place, we know it's not equally accessible for all the people in our wider community. And it's really our intention because, you know, probably all of the teachers and staff here, we have found these practices really useful just in terms of navigating our lives, being happy folks, or at least moving in the direction of being more and more happy, more and more at ease, less and less afraid. We just want to do what we can do to make the place accessible. So if for whatever reasons it doesn't feel that way to you, doesn't feel safe, please let us know. Because hopefully we're all learning that, you know, we... We exist in our bubbles based on how our minds have been conditioned by culture. And because of that, despite our sort of upfront intention to be open and loving of all beings, we're not that way. Some of you have seen, I'm sure, if you haven't, you might want to check out, there's this uh, implicit bias test you can take, uh, originally developed by Harvard University. And it just shows in different ways, whether it's around gender, around race, around class, but it demonstrates in a way that's just a very clever design. You can do it right online. It's free. And it really shows you how biases are operating in our mind, despite not wanting to be biased. There they are. And so it's really from that place, you know, that I just want to mention this every once in a while. Uh, and we need support from everyone to learn how to make this place accessible. So, that being said, now the topic tonight is actually quite subtle, and I like to give a warning because, you know, the teachings don't always land in a way that are immediately usable for you in your life, and that's okay. That's why we have memory. You know, you can just put things on a so-called shelf, And it may make sense later in your life, in your practice, or it may not. But it's important not to feel like we're supposed to understand everything. I mean, you might understand it intellectually, but it may not make sense directly in your experience. So we've been looking at the body and the mind. That's the sort of basic premise of the Buddha's approach, is to take the mind, the attention, the capacity to be aware, to be observant, and to be observant of the activity of the mind and body. So that's different than being lost in thought. You know, we call it being aware of the present moment, remembering to be aware of the present moment. And what is the present moment? It's activity of the body and the mind. And really, it's just the activity of the mind, because the body is known in the mind too, right? Everything, the whole world is being known in the mind. This is such a shocking thing. It's like there may be an external reality, 
what we mean by out there, you know, you folks or this place, Minnesota, right? There may be something out there, but all that is being known right now are appearances in the mind. And it's never been other than that, right? So even if I'm seeing something, that's a little something arising in the heart and mind and, you know, and being known. So this whole idea of external reality exists as appearances in the mind. And as an appearance, whether the appearance of a sound, appearance of a sight, appearance of a thought, appearance of an emotion, appearance of sensation, as an appearance, it really isn't much of anything. An appearance, like a reflection in a mirror, isn't really much of anything. And in a way that you could, instead of using the word appearance, appearances in our mind, you could say the mind is this sort of reflective, somehow is reflecting something. We never really know what it's reflecting, right? Because all we know is the reflection, the appearance in the mind, which is pretty ephemeral, which is why in Buddhism we use this term emptiness, right? It's more about what's not there, getting really interested, like how we're knowing. And not, it's not so much about drawing some metaphysical conclusion, the world doesn't exist. And then other people on the other side, the world exists. You know? And we could have these arguments. You know, does the world exist? Doesn't exist? But it's more about getting honest about our subjective experiencing and letting that, that sort of a process of being more truthful, more having more integrity about how we recognize what our experience is and what it isn't, and noticing that that has an effect on how we live our life and, and actually who we become. That's the intervention. So the intervention isn't to try to believe in something or to try to become somebody. The intervention from the Buddhist teachings point of view is to develop awareness, present moment awareness, and to be aware in particular, to be aware of the mind, what that is. So to use awareness, stable present moment awareness, non-judging awareness, to observe the activity of the mind, which is knowing thought and knowing the five physical senses, right? That's what the knowing mind knows. Can't really know anything else. There isn't anything else to know except the five senses and the activity of the mind, right? So to observe that knowing, to observe the mind knowing the five physical senses and the activity of the mind, and that's the intervention. So the interesting question is, what kind of effect does it have on this life going forward if I train my mind to be aware in this stable way, in this ongoing or continuous way, aware of the present moment, and in particular, aware of the present moment activity of body and mind that arises in the mind as a momentary appearance? The visual experience of seeing you is arising in my mind moment by moment as an appearance, a visual experience. 
or the sound of the blowers arising moment by moment as an appearance that I call hearing. You know, hearing that blowing sound. And sensations like the buttocks on the cushion. That sensation, like we, the convention is for us to say, no, no, my buttocks is on the cushion. There's a lot of weight there. And that feels like that, you know, hardness or whatever it is, whatever word I'd use to describe it. But actually, whatever I'm calling hardness or weight, pressure, is just an appearance in the mind. And to train the mind in that way has a real impact. It changes how we are, even really mundane things like how we relate to other people, how we relate to our body, how we relate to birth and death, how we relate to emotional pain, how we relate to success and praise. All of those things that are so central that we see as being so central to you know, being a happy person or just navigating human existence are profoundly affected by using the mind to observe the mind, and in particular, in observing the mind with a lot of integrity, a lot of clarity, as an ephemeral thing, as one appearance after another, one thing appearing and being known, or some reflection, right? Sometimes we call mindful awareness a reflective knowing. The mind is reflecting to itself. Oh yeah, this is being known. Oh, this is being known. There's an interesting image in Buddhism, came in after the time of the Buddha, and it might be related to some of, it might sort of coexist in both the yogic mystical tradition and the Buddhist tradition because they, they danced together as spiritual systems in northern India for quite a number of centuries. Um, and uh, it's called Indra's Net. I'm sure some of you have heard of this. But it's just, it's kind of like a poetic spiritual metaphor of this infinite net three-dimensional net, you know, and as any net does, there are these little intersections, you know, where one strand of the net intersects with the other strand of the net. So if you can think of a, an amazingly complex, intricate net, three-dimensional net, and at each intersection, right, and there'd be an infinite number of these intersections of the net, there's a perfect little jewel with many facets, right, like a diamond, that kind of a jewel, with many facets, perfectly cut facets, right? And each of these faces of the jewel is perfectly reflecting every other jewel and all the reflections in every other jewel, right? So you see it's like this mutually dependent reflection going on where everything's reflecting everything else. And that... It's an image that's used, a spiritual image that's used, just to help us understand that, because you know our subjective experience is that life is pretty rich, pretty complex, me- uh, messy and mysterious, right? Incomprehensible in a lot of ways. Can't really get on top of any of it. Isn't that true? I mean, life, I mean, we can pretend to be on top of it, but not really. Ultimately, on top of any of it. So. It feels like the, the conclusion mi- the mind d- 
draws is it's quite substantial life. I mean, it beats me up all the time. So we just assume it's this sort of, it has a sort of amazingly substantial reality, substance to it. And it's because, you know, it's interesting how the mind gets distorted by suffering. It's like when we hurt, we tell ourselves a story. We also tell ourselves stories when we feel good, <laughs> you know. And eventually those stories just start having, you know, they just become so normalized, so commonplace, that they start having an existence. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have read, what's his name, Robbins? Uh, Tom Robbins? He wrote a couple uh, well-known books, but it's been a while, like maybe 20, 30 years. And one book, and I can't remember because I've read most of his books, um, but one book he was talking about some of the Greek gods and, you know, like Pan. Is Pan a Roman god or a Greek god? Anybody know? Anyway, Pan, you know that sort of it had a horse body? Is that right? It was a satyr? But anyway, they, some characters in this novel was having a conversation and the thing is about these Greek gods and probably the Roman gods and all the other pantheon of deities you know, that people have imagined over the centuries, they have a reality when people believe in them. right? That's the reality. They sort of exist. And then when people stop believing in them, they start not existing anymore. And it's kind of a little bit like this. It's sort of the, the substantial nature of our life, of our pain, of our joy, of meaning, the meaningfulness of relationships that we have or political ideas that we have or whatever, exists precisely in the way the mind is participating in, in the construction of that. It's interesting... Um, I mentioned this in the Sunday talks. And Guy Armstrong, you know, some of you are reading this complimentary text for these series of talks, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators by Guy Armstrong. You can get this, by the way, at Moon Palace Books, very close, beautiful independent bookstore, and they'll sell it to you for 20% off if you want it. So we're right in the middle of the book, actually maybe two-thirds of the way through it now, chapter chapters 13, 14, uh, 14, 15, and 16 now. And um, yeah, so about this insubstantial nature, you know, Guy Armstrong uh, shares this quote, this discourse from the Buddha about how ephemeral all of this is, the body and mind. And he uses, in, in the tradition, you know, sometimes rainbow is used like a rainbow looks like something, but is it really something? Do you find a rainbow? No, it's just droplets of water in the air reflecting light. So things have an appearance, right? And so he, he, he likened the physical senses to a lump of foam, right? Looks like something, but not much of anything. He likened the feeling on the pleasantness we feel in moments, the unpleasantness we feel, the neutrality we feel, right? So 
So that feeling tone, he likens it to a little bubble that forms when a raindrop hits the ground. It's there, but it's not there in any substantial way, and it's very quickly gone. Right? It's like we've had many feelings in our life, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant feelings. But right now, what have they, all of that feeling we have all felt, all of it, what does it amount to right now? Right? I mean, we've had, hopefully, in moments, extreme pleasantness. And probably, unfortunately, extreme unpleasantness, emotional, physical pain, whatever it might be. But what does it all, all of that feeling that we have felt, what does it, how does it exist now? So you really get a sense of how ephemeral it is. Because when that really last time, that really strong pain was showing up, didn't it seem like it was pretty substantial? Pretty meaningful, like it's going to make a difference in my life. But then it goes away. You know, sitting in the dentist chair, dentist warming up the drill. <laughs> it can feel like impactful, but yeah, then it's over. It's just amazing. I mean, some of you probably have given birth. You know, I have no idea what that's like, but I'm, I'm guessing it seems pretty impactful. I, I've talked to some of my sisters and, and other good friends you know, who've given birth, and it's like, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but with even something so substantial, it's like the truth is, as completely overwhelming as some of these experiences might be, they last for a while and then they end. And then something else happens. I mean, it seems that way even with death. I mean, who knows what happens after death. But it's like, if you haven't, you know, when you get the opportunity to support people in the dying process, it's just so interesting, the drama of not so much the psychological drama, which can be there or sometimes not there, but just all the cells, all the systems in the body that have been programmed to keep the system going, doing their best to keep the system going until they can't anymore. And then it just you know, falls apart. But just to observe that struggle that most bodies go through in the dying process, and then it ends. Even that ends. feels like it can go on forever. Right? Those of us who have sat with our loved ones, you know, who don't die suddenly, but are kind of going through a more end of life, old age dying process. And so perception is like uh, a mirage, right? So feeling tone is like a bubble, they come and go. Perceptions, all the way we name experience, right? Because it's like when I see somebody and I name them, then the name replaces the scene. Or the, I say, oh, my buttocks aches. That idea then, like a mirage, replaces what was actually there, the, the ephemeral movement of sensation. And, it, and all the time, we can't stop our mind from naming things, recognizing things, remembering things. We call all of that in Buddhism perception. Right? It's, it has connotations of memory and naming. Right? And it's like a mirage because 
Like when I say, oh, this is common ground, I perceive it as common ground meditation center, then it feels like I own it, like I got it. This is common ground. And so I don't have to pay attention anymore. So I'm sort of, you know, not consciously, but unconsciously we hold to the concept as a kind of ground, the mirage, the appearance that that concept has. And so we're no longer like, because actually common ground right now is this amazing diversity of seeing and hearing and touches, right? I mean, this is what it is. What else is common ground if not this dynamic experience? And of course, each of us are having different experiences here. So what is common ground actually? This is a metaphor or teaching instruction the Buddha used a lot, this deconstructing. You know, whether we deconstruct a car and actually don't find a car, we find the carburetor, we find the leather on the seat, we find the tailpipe or, you know, this and this. We see all these pieces, but where's the car? Or we could divide, we could dissect our bodies and put all the fleshy stuff here, skin over here, bones here, but we wouldn't find me there, right, if we deconstruct it. Same with common ground. But all the sheetrock here, all the insulation, where's common ground? So this is, uh, again, just a sense of how perception creates, like a mirage, creates the appearance of something that's not actually there. Like Minnesota is a perception, right? We're in Minnesota. But there is no real Minnesota, right? I'd bet you a lot of money that if I took you a place near where we think of North Dakota and Minnesota that you couldn't distinguish. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, no, this is Minnesota, I can tell. (laughs) Yeah, this is Minnesota. (laughs) Or, you know, oh, yeah, it feels like Minnesota. No, because it's a concept. And it's, it's really interesting to see perceptions as a kind of mirage. Useful, right? Because it allows us to communicate with each other. I say Minnesota and you go, oh, I've been to Minnesota or, you know, some other place. So these concepts, you know, we have shared meaning around these appearances, these mirages. And then the Buddha likens mental formations Uh, Some of you were here last week. I mentioned it's like the trunk of a banana tree. It looks substantial, especially, you know, the bigger trees. They can be quite wide, the trunks. But unlike like a maple where you take the bark away and there's some hardwood, there's no hardwood in the center of a banana tree. You peel away the, I don't know if they call it bark or whatever they call that on the, the shell of a trunk of a banana tree. But there's nothing in the middle and, and it ends, it's, you know, existence as a trunk at the end of the season, and then it sprouts up again the next season, right? So it just sort of falls apart and decays very quickly because there's no hardwood there. So when we're in, uh, you know, this realm of the mind we call mental formations, mental constructions, mental fabrications, it's how different people translate the word sankaras. The key part of sankara, the volitional aspect of the mind, like, oh, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. I want to think that. I want to say that. I want to do this activity. 
right? Because the mind is constructing some meaning that often leads to a sense of engagement, of doing, including thinking. Thinking is a kind of doing, right? So that can, when we're obsessive and we're chewing on something and generating a lot of meaning, it seems quite substantial. But again, just like I said with feelings and other aspects of the mind, we've had a lot of obsessive dances, you know, or activities, and then they go. And it's so interesting we can, when we actually catch it. Like if we're obsessing about our partner or obsessing about politics or a, par- uh, a problem in our life, and then it gets interrupted. A friend calls us and says, you want to go to the wine bar? You know, or something, you know, you want to go for a drink or do you want to go play? And then all of a sudden, it's like we drop that thing that was huge. It's like defined our whole existence for minutes at a time, hours even, right? It's like, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't exist. And we're talking about like the weather with a friend. And we're, and that reality of me in that drama doesn't exist anymore, right? And you can just look back. We can all look back today about dramas. I saw a cabin I could actually afford on the south shore of Lake Superior today. <laughs> just came on the market. I sent, we have a realtor up there, and I sent her an email. I said, how can this be? This is, I can afford this one. And she said, well, no, it's great. It's tiny. It doesn't have plumbing, so it's nothing fancy. But anyway... She says, well, uh, there was a historic storm on the South Shore. I don't know if you knew this, but last, I don't know if it was in October or November, there were these very strong north to south winds, and it just shifted the whole lake south. And there was quite a, a lot of damage along the shoreline, so on the so- people on the South Shore, especially uh, as you get closer to Superior and Duluth area. It's, there are no rocks. It's all clay. So there's a lot of damage. Right, so it's like, uh, why did I bring up the South Shore? Oh, because it was a draw, a sep- obsession, right? Oh. <laughs> See, it just disappeared. <laughs> and it's just like interesting. And the, Now, have you noticed like when you do lose one obsession and your mind is sort of like not drowning in an obsession or drama, and then it sort of looks around for another drama to get lost in. You know, and so this is the thing about that sankara, the fourth or the third quality of mind. So we have the feeling tone, which is a mental thing, like oh, I like this. This is pleasant. There's perception. They're all very related. So don't expect them like to see your mind as a four different things. They're just different aspects of what we call the activity of mind: the feeling tone aspect, the perception a- aspect this more catch-all category called sankara, mental fabrications, constructions, volition, uh, intention, and then consciousness. Now, consciousness is like a magician's trick. So all of the five physical senses, like a lump of foam, you'd see it alongside a river, feeling tone like a bubble, very ephemeral, perception like a mirage, looks real, not much of anything, Sankaras, uh, mental fabrications, these mental obsessions, substantial like the trunk of a banana tree, and consciousness like a magician's trick. 
right? And I was talking earlier about materialism, right? Because this idea that there's some substantial physical reality and whoever, whatever I am, whatever consciousness is or my mind is, is some, something that arises out of material existence. And when I die or when my mind stops working because of some accident or whatever, material existence just continues, right? That's sort of our, you know, from, I think, a provocative point of view, that's our religious belief. We believe in materialism. And the way you know it's a fundamentalist religious belief is because when I tell you that, we get defiant. No, it's not. It's actually the way it is. And that's what people who have fundamentalist belief say. No, 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 this isn't a belief, it's just true. You know, whether it's God exists or hell exists or, you know, these things that we believe and hold to, like materialism, that there's a physical existence that we're, that's, we're part of, but it, it's its own thing and everything that is, it just comes out of material existence. And um, as I've been mentioning last week and previous talks on this subject, there's a lot of functionality to studying material existence. You know, we call it like the physical sciences, figure things out. You know, it's essential for developing technology and nifty gadgets. But it doesn't necessarily have much to say about suffering and the end of suffering, right? Like we might be more clever as human beings but it'd be a whole different argument to say whether individually or collectively we're happier. All we know is, you know, we have can openers, which we didn't have a couple hundred years ago. You know, and we have cans <laughs> <laughs> to open <laughs> and lots of other things. You know, like buildings like this and clocks. This clock is tuned into some thing in Colorado, you know, where they send the radio signal out so it's always right but of course it's just time is just a construction the fact that it's 836 right that's also like what is that so so in what the buddha says though instead of like material existence being primary and everything coming out of that he says something differently he says basically that it's really interesting and this uh, sort of essential but very subtle teaching of the Buddha that's called uh, dependent co-arising or dependent origination is another translation for this teaching. Basically, the Buddha talking about how it is that there's this appearance of me suffering when it's all nature, right? When there's no center, no core, unchanging core, me, Yet, it appears that there is a me who's suffering, at least at times, doesn't it? Right? So, in that, in, in kind of mapping out how an impersonal, coreless process could create, allow for there to be an appearance of somebody, me, who suffers, he came up with this map. And part of the map was describing how consciousness, like, because 
if it's going to be a natural process, that, that means everything we experience, like we experience knowing. How do we experience knowing? Well, objects of experience are being known. That's how we know there's knowing, right? I can know things. I can know visual experience. I can know touch. I can even know mental activity, right? I can know that there are thoughts in my mind or there's an emotion in my mind and body, right? So there, we know there's consciousness because objects are being known. So the way the Buddha talks about you know, what we would, in normal language, call physical reality or material reality is it's a mutually dependent thing. It doesn't exist as its own thing. It's mutually dependent on what he calls name and form. Right? So consciousness is the supporting cause for name and form. So form is the five physical senses, the sensitivity of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And name is that perceptual process, giving things a name, recognizing things, having the abstraction. So when I say Kamgam meditation is in Minnesota and it's Wednesday night, May 2nd, is that right? May 2nd today, right? So that's a abstraction, right? That's the naming part of the mind. And whatever physically exists, that exists as the sensitivity to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And then because of all that sensitivity, I say it's Wednesday night, May 2nd. We're at Kamgam Meditation Center in Minnesota, and it's 839. That's the naming. And the naming and the form the physical experience that sort of leads me to say all that naming stuff, they kind of map together, they're related, right? And so the Buddha says that consciousness is dependent on name and form, and name and form is dependent on consciousness. Now that's kind of interesting. And he gives a, I think actually Sariputta, uh, who was his main disciple, taught you know alongside the buddha he died before the buddha he was older than the buddha but anyway he gave this simile as uh, two reeds you know like uh, the stiffer type of grass that would fall over at the end of the season but because they happen to be leaning on each other that's the image so when we see that you know thing that two bunches of reeds leaning on each other right it's like we wouldn't see that if it weren't for the other because it would fall down. It wouldn't be, you know, be on the ground. But it's there because of that mutual dependence. They're mutually supporting each other. So we have this experience of physical reality because of consciousness. Physical reality is really this mapping of the sensitivity of the five physical senses and the names we give, the story we tell about this sensitivity to touch and sight and smell and taste and seeing, right? So it's illuminated by consciousness and consciousness allows it to be illuminated, right? There's no physical reality without consciousness. How could there be? Or what would the relevance of it be if it's not being known? So... This is another, you see how this also points to why emptiness is an important teaching. Because 
we may not like this, but you see what I said earlier in the talk, when we practice observing our experience in this mutually dependent way, like life does feel substantial, but it's a bit of a house of cards. It feels substantial because of this stance between knowing and what's being known. Right? It has this appearance. But the more we study it, the more we see that it is an appearance. It's It's fundamentally ephemeral, insubstantial, impersonal, not worthy of grasping, not worry, uh, worthy of being tight. Of there, there's no need for any tension. And this is why like, we have statues. I mean, the whole point of these statues is like a metaphor for serenity in the midst of messy human existence where there are infinite number of power plays going on, people exploiting other people, fear of death, wanting to be liked, you know, wanting to be seen, hungry, looking for food, wanting to survive. So there's all this seemingly substantial stuff. And the question is, when we take a closer and closer look, not at our thoughts about it, but at at our moment-to-moment experiencing these two reads, right, that make this appearance of something quite substantial. We have awareness and the name and form. So again, form is just the sensitivity to sights, hearing, smell, taste, and touching. And the names the perceptual process gives to stuff, the concepts, the conceptual overlay that arises in conjunction with the sensitivity, right? Because it's sort of a dual thing that are just happening all the time. I haven't been able to stop it, right? Where we're sensitive in the way that our mind is sensitive and we're telling, you know, this inner dialogue, we're basically telling ourselves a story about what we're sensitive to and they happen together, and that's being known, right? And that's what we call my life, or human existence. And it's, it's challenging, but it, the mind can be trained to be looking at life from this subjective point of view. We call it dharma or dhamma, right? So when we say the way it is, we're moving from this deluded idea that there's this external reality because that's just an idea being known here in the mind, right? Just because I tell myself there's this external reality, that's not the external reality. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But the point is, what's that subjective experience of having the thought? This is external reality. You know, there's a planet, it's big, it's heavy, and I'm standing on it. You know, and there's molten lava in the core. You know, and there's empty space. I mean, we have all these things that just, but those are just thoughts in the mind. Like in terms of our subjective experience, it's just a thought in the mind. So the mindfulness training, like opening to the way it is, opening to Dhamma, means we're highlighting the subjective experiencing moment to moment. We're realizing that's all we have is subjective experience. There's never been anything that wasn't our subjective experience, meaning 
the mind is knowing these appearances in the mind. That's all there is. Never been anything but that. And when we start ha- being more honest about what experiencing is, it changes how we are in this so-called world. It Attachment, clinging, grasping, struggling, hating, fearing, lusting, just don't make sense as the mind more and more comes into alignment with this training of being intimate with Dhamma, intimate with the way it actually is. So when we say being aware of the present moment, we mean, the Buddha means, being aware that this is something being known. Right? That's like there's some sensitivity and the mind's naming that sensitivity and it's being known. And that experience in this moment is something mutually dependent. If you take the consciousness away, there's no experiencing. You take the name and form away, there's no experiencing. If you take the sensitivity away, so together they make the experience what it is in the moment. And whatever that is, the experience in the moment, the subjective experience in the moment, it's only there for a moment because there's another moment of experience and then another but we don't notice that it goes away, that it literally ceases. You know, a few minutes ago I said it was 8.36. That, whatever that moment was for each of us, it just ceased. It doesn't exist anywhere. Same with 8.37, 8.38, and even within those minutes there were so many moments of experience. All of them were there and gone. And and every and even each one of those experiences was insubstantial because it was just an appearance, just a reflective appearance in the mind. And the more we let this in and in and in, the heart just lets go. But remember, it's not about understanding it philosophically. It's about getting interested in what experience is. Not intellectually, but actually. That's why we use the word dhamma. That's why we spend a lot of time training the mind just to be interested in sensations. Like, what's the, what does it feel like to be sitting now? And to see that as a flow, right? There's one moment of experiencing after another, after another, after another. And it really challenges the mirage that perception gives, like, my body's getting old, you know? And that idea feels quite substantial. But the experience isn't the same way. So I'll leave it here, just reminding you what I said at the beginning. This is more subtle territory in our practice. Talking about consciousness is always kind of a setup for like, oh, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) So remember, you can just put it on a shelf somewhere. Maybe it will be useful at some time, maybe not. But anyway, we have some time. Uh, remember to point the mic like this. It's nice to hear your questions or your own experiences that you'd like to share with the group. Yeah, please start us off. First row of chairs here. I was thinking of two things, and I, I'm wondering if we would have a lot to learn from small children about this, because I was, I was thinking um, a week ago or so, I got in a fight with my partner, and I was feeling really discouraged and upset with him and I held on to it and I held on to it and I 
you know, for a long, long time. Yeah. Just stay in, you know. And, uh, but I'm thinking of uh, small children and how, you know, something happens. They're really upset. They're crying. And then, you know, and then it's just gone, you know, yeah. and then they're, and then they're happy. And, the, you know, it's, so they're not. But that happened to you too. On. So where was that moment when the drama was there and then the next moment the drama wasn't there? Was it like a slow evaporation of the drama or was it a sudden it was there and then it wasn't there? But even if it was a slow fading of the drama, the intensity of the drama, still it ha- it, what happened is what happens as you're saying with children. We're like, you know, they're doing something they're not supposed to do and then you pull out the other toy and they, and they totally forget this other drama that they were in the middle of, like they were fighting with their sibling because they both wanted the same toy and you say, but wouldn't you like to play with this? And you solve the problem. Yeah, and adults too, exactly. Yeah. But the, the key is, even in hindsight, now that you're thinking back, we can get the Dharma lesson, right? Because in hindsight, We can remember some obsession we had earlier in the day and we can sense that was there, it was there, seemed substantial, seemed like me, but it's not there now. Isn't that interesting? And really let that ephemeral nature sink in. Just like this Wednesday night program is creeping toward its conclusion. And, you know, to some degree, it was a pretty substantial thing that we all did, gathering here like we've done. And then it will be gone. And Wednesday afternoon is definitely gone. April is gone. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. Who would like to share next? Your reflections. Please don't be shy. We learn a lot hearing from each other, just kind of normalizing how we integrate these different teachings, what it reveals. Yeah, please. Wanna all help pass the mic over? All the way over here. Thank you. I'm my name is Mike. Um I'm curious increasingly the the more I practice I've been able to go from seeing the moments of obsession in hindsight to being able to see them while I'm there. But, and I'm, I'm a little bit stymied now because now I see them while I'm there and I'm, I don't know quite what to do with them. (laughs) (laughs) Some, some thoughts on, on what to do when you can see you're right in the middle of it in, in a way that helps you learn from and integrate those experiences. Yeah. Great question. If there's enough confidence in the practice, not so completely overwhelmed by the intensity of it, then to be amazed at the magic show, right? Because it's like, it really seems like there's a suffering human being here, right? I mean, that's such a useful perspective when life is really difficult to just be amazed at how realistic the experience of being a suffering human being is. It's very compelling. But you see, there's some space in the mind that knows it's compelling. So the mind isn't completely absorbed in... It's like an actor realizing in the middle of some intense 
I have a friend, a well-known actor in town, and he's done a lot of uh, uh, August Wilson's plays, you know, Fences. Some of you saw that movie, but it's a, a play, and you know it's, a, it's an intense role for the main character, the guy played in the movie by Denzel Washington. Um, just the trauma of his life that he's expressing and the regrets and all that. And, uh, you know, and so I, I talked to this person about, like, how difficult a role, I, I might, you know, especially people who like doing a play night after night after night after night. These, and uh, just, it's like, because partly you have to just get lost or become that person, but you also, you'd get fried. If, so it's like being able to step out and realize, yeah, I'm that broken, hurting angry, whatever, uh, bitter person. That, that's, but, but it's like the mind steps away in a sense or there's some space that knows, oh yeah, it's like this now. And you can even use a phrase, a simple phrase like that. Oh, it's like this now. Sometimes it's like this. So your whole life is falling apart. You don't know how you're going to put it back together. Oh, it feels like this now. Sometimes in life it is like this. It's a mess like this. And then ask as a real question. You're not telling yourself, can this be okay? Is there enough space of fearlessness to acknowledge that it's okay? When we say, can this be okay, meaning, is it okay not to get tight because it's really bad? Why make it worse by getting tight? It's really interesting to play that. It's obviously easier to do when it's not completely overwhelming. But just to, and like I was saying to you, we can do it in hindsight. So even if we blow it and we totally are lost in it until it's over, and then there's some space and the mind realizes, oh yeah, I was really lost. Because, you know, this is the neat thing about memory. The mind in its more primitive level, it doesn't really know the difference between our imaginings and reality. So like if I bring up a bad breakup or some difficult experience, you know, there's a little bit of that here again. And so I can imagine sort of seeing it like, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. It feels like this. Is it safe to allow it to be this when it is this way? Yeah, it's more safe to allow it to be what it is than to pretend that it's not what it is. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Time for one more? Yeah, please. Maybe another, we'll see. Why don't you wait for the microphone, though, so we can hear you. And point it horizontally. Yeah, more like that, real close. I was at the hospital, Hennepin County, and um, working beside a intern maybe or something and um, heard an ambulance. So I said, oh, more business coming. And he looked up and he stopped for and listened and then he said, no, it's not ours. And for that moment, that instance, um, I wasn't, it didn't feel like I was in myself. I was in his mind. Um, 
What was that? <laughs> I'll give you a very Buddhist answer. It was exactly what you experienced, which was there were some five physical senses operating. You were sensitive to sight, seeing the intern, hearing the intern, whatever else. There were the, the naming of that, how your mind named that, and that it was known. And the thing is, that's the great thing. We don't have to tell ourselves what it is because we know what it was. It was that experience that was being known in that moment. It was there. Sounds like a kind of unusual, open kind of experience, right? But whatever it was, it, it lasted for a while, and now it's gone. And now what remains is the reverberation, which is its own experience. The memory of it, like I was just saying, the memory of it has a little bit of the flavor of the actual thing, right? The first when you had that experience. And the question is, well, what's that experience? Just you remembering it right now, out loud for all of us. What's that experience? Well, it was just that mental image, thought, being known. But the, the point the Buddha would make is, honey, honeys, <laughs> let's notice how ephemeral these experiences are. Because that's what's relevant. Not that it was sort of a, maybe a kind of a synchronistic what we would call like sort of shared mind experience or something like that. But what's more useful to notice because it undoes the habit of attachment is to notice that it came, it arose, and then it left, and it's gone. Because then we just start relating to all of life with a lot more lightness and forgiveness and patience and humor, really. Kind of a sweet humor. When we understand, in the same way, if we think I can hold on to my beauty, my wealth, my power, my whatever, we're, we can justify a lot of violence, a lot of denial, a lot of ignorance. So this is the point I made at the beginning. When we let the reality in, the, the changing nature of reality, the ephemeral nature, the impersonal nature, we become a much better human being, a much lighter nimble and creative human being and this is all very pragmatic it's not something we can think our way through we just actually have to pay attention to the subjective experience that's here and now in each moment just see it experience it as it actually is it's not rocket science it's right here it's just not our habit our habit is to be lost in thought about our experiences but we have to train the mind. It can be trained, but we have to train it. This is a good place to end. Thanks for your comment. Just take a few seconds, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Let go of the words, especially tonight. Appreciate a few seconds of silence. the open space of the present moment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.